Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Oh, hello everyone. Welcome to the Disability Study channel on New Books Network. I'm Shawan, the host of this Disability Study channel. So today I feel very pleased and honored to invite Dr. Erin Rafferty to talk about her newest book, Families We Need. So the first thing I want to do today is that introduce um, I'm sorry, I want to invite you, Dr. Rafti, to introduce herself to us, her interest and her research interest and her current research. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I am currently a lecturer in the Princeton writing program at Princeton University, and I'm trained as a cultural anthropologist. I also do a lot of research consulting with Princeton Theological Seminary. My more recent work is actually studying um, people with disabilities in churches and looking at access and inclusion. Um, but this is uh, a book that I published based on my dissertation <laughs> research um, when I was still a graduate student. Okay, thank you so much, um, Dr. Rafti. So my next question will be, I mean, I want, I'm wondering, I'm curious, um, the reason why you became interested in disability studies like a few years ago and uh, how did you enter this field? So disability was kind of an ethnographic surprise for me, if you will. Um, I talk about in my book how I went to China with an interest in foster families and specifically foster mothers that were raising children um, that were often adopted to Western countries. And I was so interested in why these women, many of whom had fostered like 10, 15 children, would keep doing this over and over because it seemed like really challenging emotional labor. And it was only after I got to China and I started visiting foster families and um, visiting orphanages that I discovered that the majority of children in orphanages in China today and in foster care were children with disabilities. 
So I had kind of a crash course in disability in China, which was really challenging because um, Chinese is not my first language. And much of this language is very particular um, in whatever country or culture and is very medicalized. So it was exciting yet challenging um, to get to know uh, the situation of people with disabilities in China, particularly medically fragile children. Many of the children that I was um, studying were medically fragile. So that was kind of my first foray into disability studies. Um, I talk a little about, bit in my book about my personal story, about how when I came back from China, um, my daughter was born with a progressive genetic disease of the brain. And so since that time, <laughs> I feel more connected than ever <laughs> to the foster families that I was um, studying in, in China. And I continue to research and study on disability in my personal, I guess, and professional life. So as I mentioned, uh, one of my recent books is called From Inclusion to Justice, and it's about congregational ministry with people with disabilities in Christian churches in the United States. It's also based on ethnographic research. And then the course that I currently teach at Princeton University in the writing program is on disability justice. So um, my entire scholarship now <laughs> is wrapped up in disability, which was uh such a wonderful experience that began in my research in China. And then, you know, now in my experience of parenting, I've learned a lot about advocacy um, for people with disabilities in this country that I kind of wish I knew <laughs> when I was in China, even though the situation is very different. But um, it makes me feel really connected to those families in a, in a new way. Okay, thank you, Dr. Rafti. Thanks so much for your answers. So let's turn to our book. So my first question is that I want to, if possible, um, I want to invite you to outline the situation of the three abandoned children and their foster mother in China and the social sorry, social vulnerability and the marginal, much, sorry, marginal, marginality of a foster, fa foster families in contemporary China. I mean, as a Chinese national, I'm strongly interested in, in, in that situation and the I mean, on say the relation between the abandoned children with disability and those, I mean, their fam um, foster family, foster mothers. Thank you. Yeah. So the story arc of the book revolves around three um, abandoned children, and I should say off the top that I use the term abandonment because I talk, as you said, so much about social vulnerability in the text, and I talk about when children in China are abandoned into um, the state welfare system, that's a particular type of abandonment that makes them very socially vulnerable because they are seen as not having family ties, which is something that's really important in Chinese culture. And so that really disadvantages them. So even though the three children that the book revolves around are really different in terms of their circumstances, I kind of treat them together and they make a group that I follow throughout the course of the book because of that experience of social vulnerability. And I know that that term abandonment can be really fraught, especially for um, U.S. audiences and um, people who have adopted. So I just wanted to say that the reason that I use it is to really show how significant this experience is for these children. And two of the children that the book follows are disabled. Um, one is Pei Pei, and she has um, has had surgery to repair a cleft palate um, and still speaks with a lisp. And then um, 
one of the other um, child, one of the other children is named um, Dung Rong, and she has cerebral palsy. Um, and then the other child uh, that I follow in the book is named Mei Li, and Mei Li actually doesn't have a disability but was abandoned as a result of a divorce. Um, So it's actually really interesting because when we think of children who are orphans, we often think of children who don't have parents. (laughs) But in this case, um, Pei Pei's mother um, is incarcerated. And Dung Rong probably still has parents, although we don't quite know where they are. And Mei Li definitely still has a father, but um, it's the case of many children who experience divorce in China, especially in areas where there's still like patrilocal kinship <laughs> um, patterns that uh, when the father moves on to kind of start a, a new family that um, and, and the mother starts a new family, there, there's that child kind of no longer has a family. So that was the, the case with respect to her. So I look at the three really different cases of these children, but the way in which, as you said, they all kind of find themselves on the margins of social life. And that's partly because they are seen to have no family ties, as I said, um, and even more so that than the fact that they're disabled. Um, But then I also talk about the fact that um, the foster mothers, um, who are very much a part of the story as well, who are fostering these children, and there are fathers in the the picture in some cases, but the mothers are much more involved, so I talk about them more. Um, They're also kind of on the margins of social life because China has a um, tremendously aging population, and there aren't a lot of... Um, pension or supports in the same way that there aren't a lot of supports for disabled people in China. And so like, I kind of was looking at this social affinity between these two populations that brings them together um, in these foster families. And so one of the things that's important to note is that while the book, you know, follows the trajectory of these three children, and I won't give it away yet that they all have different fates, um, it also follows the experiences of their of their mothers, who I call Auntie Ma, Auntie Huang, and Auntie Lee, and um, their relationship uh, not only to the children but to society and kind of their standing um, in the eyes of of people around them. And so, whereas they get into fostering because they don't necessarily have. Um, children who are of uh, childbearing age, who they're taking care of or in relationship with, maybe their children have moved away and are working in the cities. And that's definitely the case in a lot of cases in China. And we're still looking at families providing welfare. So they feel pretty lonely um, as well. And so that's one of the reasons that they get into fostering, you know, it's partly financial, but it's partly because of their own social vulnerability. Yes, thank you so much. Dr. Rafti, <clears throat> so I really appreciate your discussion about the situation of the, I mean, marginalization or marginality of both those children and their foster families in the three cases. So my next question will be, um, could you please talk a little bit about the rise of inter-country adoption and adoption of children with disability in Chinese society now? Yeah, so one thing that I um, was noticing when I would walk around um, villages and apartment complexes um, and meet foster parents is that they would say things like, oh, 
I've fostered, you know, many, many children and several of them have gone to Spain or Holland or the United States. And so I was noticing that the trajectory of many of these children, um, the ultimate trajectory was in some sort of Western country. And I knew going to China, as I said, that there were foster parents, but I kind of assumed that they were fostering um typical baby girls, because that's most of what you hear about um, what happened in China in the 1980s and 1990s and early 2000s, that due to the one-child policy, um, uh, infant girls were abandoned. So like I said, I was really surprised to find that the majority of the children that I met in foster care um, had disabilities, and they weren't necessarily girls. There were just as many boys as girls um, in the cases that that I studied. So one of the things that I started um, trying to understand was, you know, why this was happening. And um, I, in the same way that many um, scholars who have looked at um, the abandonment of baby girls argue that it can't just be attributed to Chinese culture, that you really have to think about kind of this perfect storm <laughs> of this one child policy, plus these cultural attitudes of needing to have a boy to carry on the family line and to contribute to the household. Um, and the fact that uh, the infant girls that were being abandoned weren't even first birth. They were usually like second, third and fourth births that were over quota births and families at that point just could not legally um, or economically afford to, to keep these children. Um, I think there's a similar situation with the rise of abandonments of disabled children and the disproportionate number of children um, in social welfare institutions in China who are disabled. I think it is both the case that there are prejudicial attitudes toward disabled people and disabled children in China, but then I think it's also the case that you had this one-child policy and you had a lack of understanding that um, people would be able to have multiple children if they had a disabled child. And you have um, a society not unlike, I would say, the United States, where there isn't a lot of support for families. Um you know, social, economic, uh, even therapeutic services for families that are raising disabled children. So a couple of things that I discuss in the book is that I really don't want people to get the wrong idea that most children with disabilities in China are abandoned by their parents, because that is absolutely not the case. It is such a small percentage <laughs> that it's even kind of minuscule statistically. And yet China is a very big country. <laughs> so this ends up being a large number of children that then end up in institutions. And then if you just look at the statistics, you know, healthy ad adoptions of typical healthy children really waned um, in kind of 2004, 2005. And then from that time forward, um, inter-country adoption outside of China has really increased for disabled children. So one of the things that I'm really questioning um, with regards to this trend is to what extent foster care in China is like fueling <laughs> this market for inter-country adopt adoption. And another thing that I'm thinking about is not just supply, so the disproportionate number of disabled children in institutions, but demand. So, you know, the fact that there are um, couples and families in Western countries that really want to adopt disabled children from China, I believe fuels a um, demand for that and then thereby increases supply. And that's a really hard thing to prove, but it's a really reasonable thing to consider given what we saw with the abandonments of baby girls in the 1990s and the early 2000s. So 
this is kind of the big picture of the book is that, you know, I'm looking at this like very specific um, population, um, foster children that are fostered out of institutions in China. Um, But the big picture is thinking about what these what role these families play in building families all over the globe and then thinking about what role these families play in Chinese culture as well okay professor Rafti, thanks so much thanks so much um for your introduction for your discussion so my following question will be like after talking about big picture let's talk about small picture or small image um so my question is about um, I'm wondering about the changing image of adopt children and for the parents within the process of adoption and the caregiving. Yeah, so this was kind of my daily life was spending a lot of time with um, foster families and you know, holding babies and <laughs> feeding children, helping children um, with their physical therapy and. Um, what I saw in these families was what I think is pretty uh, typical, um, probably among you know Chinese families in terms of strategies of child rearing and child care. But what I also started to see was kind of the mediation of that by the foster um, foster care monitors, so the monitors that worked out of the orphanage, and then some people who worked in NGOs that were supporting these families. And then, as I mentioned, the um, foster parents were much older than typical parents, so they were in like their 50s, 60s, and 70s. So that created an interesting dynamic because they had grown up in a completely different time period from, you know, the younger parents who had grown up, say, like the Baling Ho generation. So the, you know, folks who grew up 1980s and and after. And so these were folks with like larger families and um, who had grown up in poverty and even experienced the cultural revolution. And so sometimes this impacted how they parented. So I talk about situations in which they were very frugal. (laughs) Um, So the, um, stipends that they received from the orphanage, they were really proud of how much they could save in terms of, and but they were supposed to be spending that on the children, but they were really proud of how much they could save, but they felt like that actually made them a better parent. So you started to see these slippages, and I talk about that in other chapters, between these kind of different generational styles, styles of parenting and different um, classes as well that are represented among the older foster parents who tended to be poorer and were also doing it because of the financial incentive. And then the um, more kind of educated, more affluent um, workers who were working as part of the orphanage or the NGO. But ultimately, I saw a pretty big transformation in the way that the parents would originally receive the children. Sometimes when they first met the children, they would make comments about um, how ugly they were um, or um, how like a child's foot was deformed or something like that. And they would speak very forthright, you know, about these differences in sometimes really disparaging ways. But over time, um, I noticed that foster parents uh, came to really express so much love and affection and care for their foster children and um, definitely expressed that they cared for them just as they cared for Um, the children that they may have raised before them, their own children, and that there was this big transformation. So in the book, I talk about, you know, from ugly children to beloved sons and daughters, because these children became um, not just 
a, a child that the the parents love, but also a child that kind of opened up doors for them in terms of their reintegration into society. So whereas these older um, foster parents could be seen as kind of having no contribution to make to society anymore, now that they had children, they would come out into the community and fraternize with the other parents. And they would be very proud of this sacrifice that they felt that they were making really for the the state, for the Chinese state, the way that they were raising and caring for this child. But then finally, they would also talk about, in many cases, how they knew that this child would be better off in another country. And so that was so interesting. At the same time that they fiercely loved these children and imagined them as their own and, and grew to care for them and express the strengths of the child versus the weaknesses, they really had this inferiority kind of complex when it came to um, a child's trajectory. You know, if they could be adopted to a Western country, they they expressed very freely that that would be the very best thing for the child. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Okay, thank you so much. So my follow-up, my next question will be like, uh, you know, I mean, I think, I think, I, I think it's very interesting because you, in your answer to my last question, you mentioned like the presence of like, say, the tension or whatever between like NGOs and those forced parents. So my follow-up question will be like, uh, could you talk a little about like, I won't say the politics or the complicated relations between the three parties, orphanages, mercy care workers, mercy care workers, and the foster mothers. Yeah, so the Mercy Care Workers is the NGO that I got to know that really opened a lot of doors for me in terms of being able to work freely with the state orphanage in the city that I was located. Um, so Mercy Care represents that NGO that... Um, uh, provides funding for foster care. And then there was the state orphanage and their workers. And these were all like young women in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. And then the foster mothers, who's, as I mentioned, were older, um, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And so, yeah, I started to um, notice that there was a very kind of push-pull dynamic, if you will, <laughs> between the mercy care workers and the orphanage workers and the older foster mothers. So they would, at you know, the same time they would like bemoan, oh, good foster mothers are hard to find. And what they meant by that was like young foster mothers, um, because they really wanted younger parents because they felt like they had more modern parenting techniques and um, they would be able to care for children who were traumatized and they wouldn't um, 
me reprimanding them or yelling at them or kind of using some of these older ways of parenting that they were suspicious of. They would say that and they would complain about that. But then they would kind of admit under their breath that like they would never be able to take care of these children because they felt that their medical needs were so complicated um, or some of the children um, had behavioral challenges. Um, And so in their own lives, like they were really struggling to manage caring for many of them had young children, caring for their own young children and like reconciling that they were away from their families a lot to try to build kind of up these families. So there was a lot of ambivalence there. So even as they needed these foster mothers to do this job so that these children could be um, adopted eventually, and um, sometimes they were adopted in China, but more often they were adopted abroad or maybe they went back into the the orphanage eventually. So they needed these mothers to do this labor. And so they would kind of not manipulate them, but they would really want them to keep taking on children. Um, In fact, they would say the only cure for a broken heart is to take another child. Um, So they, they relied on them very, very heavily, but then they were also very, very critical of them. And so I found that to be kind of disturbing and interesting. And it was difficult for me because I was more the age of the um, mercy care workers and the orphanage monitors and kind of could relate to them, but then felt really kind of confused by this dynamic because I spent most of my time with the foster mothers. But the other thing that I eventually saw that is like underneath a lot of that ambivalence and critique was, um, I think, envy, because I think that they were really jealous of the time that the older foster parents who weren't working because they were all retirees were able to devote to their young families. And in some cases, because I studied one foster care placement was that was out in a rural village, a lot of the people in the city I was working in were like immigrants. I mean, they came from within China. They came from the countryside to the city and they missed a lot of their childhood and the way they grew up in the countryside. And so especially when we went out to this rural village where there were about 20 something kids from the city orphanage um, place there, all of whom had disabilities, like the foster care um, monitors and the orphanage workers were just like wax poetic about like how much they missed the countryside and it was so beautiful and it was a simpler time and it was such a beautiful childhood and um, it really tugged at their heartstrings. And so you could see that they had a lot of ambivalence about this modern life that they were trying to live and a lot of envy (laughs) about um, people who had time right? To spend with their children. Like they would go, you know, for days at a time to visit these foster children in this rural village, leaving their own families behind. And so I had really intimate, powerful conversations with them about that kind of push, pull and and tug. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much again for your answers. So so interesting. Um, My last question will be like, how is a little bit theoretical, how the exceptional Sorry, how the exceptionalism afforded to children with a disability in, Ch- in Chinese foster family served to marginalize and stigmatize such children and their families, foster families. Yeah, so this is something that I was trying to make sense of in my field work and really struggling with. I kept hearing, um, like I said, the foster mothers say, 
while it would just be so much better, right, if this child were adopted to America, you know, then they would have, um, I hear, you know, they say things like, I hear that in America, they really love disabled children. (laughs) Um, And I was sort of like, but you really love this child. Like, I don't understand. (laughs) Um, And then I would also hear at the same time, like I mentioned, when we would go out to this rural village that um, the uh, village head and the foster care um, worker from the orphanage that helped set up this placement would say like, oh, out in the countryside, like they really love these disabled children and they can care for them um, better than they can care for them in the city. These are really special families. So the idea that like there were special families um, and maybe like more moral families in the United States, say, or in this village was really interesting to me. And I was kind of trying to figure out what this meant. And at one point, I remember I was having a conversation with a foster mother in this village about her foster child. And she was one of the foster care workers from the Mercy Care was saying, well, you know, um, when is your child going to go to kindergarten? Because like, he's really smart. And this kid wasn't in school. And she was just laughing like this child can't go to kindergarten because the child had cognitive disabilities. And she just thought there was no way. And there was a similar kind of interaction at um, a celebration that we had in the village where um, the village head was like praising all the families and saying how special and extraordinary they were to offer care to disabled children. And then, you know, someone was asking again about these children going to school and under his breath, he was just sort of like, I don't think these kids can go to school. (laughs) So you could start to see that something that sounded really good in terms of praise and people and, you know, this is not um, foreign to disability studies, right, where we have kind of these um, super crip or superhero or inspirational stories, right? So we're praising people for being extraordinary and special was really quite ableist because underneath all of that, there was this tension, right? That um, these children were not accepted. Um, They were not thought of as children that could go to school. And so this exceptionalism started to kind of look um, a little bit questionable. Um, And it's something that I then explore as well with thinking about kind of the special character of families that adopt from China and raise disabled children because there's this whole kind of curative venture that's going on there where in many, so in many cases, China will expedite these adoptions and surgeries will be performed on children in the United States because it outsources costs. And there's this perception that the surgery might be done better because it's a Western country. But the idea is, well, this child, you know, hopefully can have a surgery and they'll no longer be disabled and they'll be absorbed into you know, America, and they'll be just like any other child. And I think it's curious to think about all these children that have been adopted from China. And we in this country care so much about thinking about these children's cultural heritage and connecting them with that. But I have never heard about families raising children to think about their disabled identity and to be proud of being a disabled child. In fact, that seems to be something we're trying to erase. So I thought that this was a really important dynamic to look into from, you know, a cultural and an international perspective when thinking from a disability studies perspective as well. Yeah, I really appreciate the answer, especially the last few sentences you mentioned, like, interesting, because, you know, I'm as a disability historian, I'm very interesting, you mentioned, like, uh, okay, those family, foster family or uh, male family adopt Chinese children, they, they are not prone to view 
this okay they think highly of those children like chinese heritage really i want to say cultural or racial identity but they don't i want to say they don't think highly of the fact like disability people with a disability it could be one kind of identity especially in contemporary american society that's a very interesting question so but my, uh, anyway, so my next question will be like, uh, let's go back to the three di- um, differentiated fates of the three for the children and therefore the parents in, in your book. Yeah, so, you know, the book, and I, I'm maybe not doing it justice, <laughs> the book follows the children throughout. So I kind of just told the stories of, of who they are and I'll tell what happens to them, but there's a lot more that goes on. So I hope you'll read the book. <laughs> but um you know, Pepe, whose mom is incarcerated, it was kind of unusual that she was in foster care to begin with, because um, unfortunately, um, children whose parents are incarcerated often um, grow up in institutions like the orphanage. And one of the issues for children who are abandoned into orphanages is that their huko, so their um, household registration ends up being located in the orphanage and that kind of marks them as an orphan. And it is very, so instead of like being from the country or a city or a town, it's like they're from the orphanage. And so they, that, that stigma kind of really, um, goes along with them. So one of the things that was going on throughout the book is Auntie Lee, Pepe's foster mom, she just, couldn't say enough about how smart Pepe was. And she really was so smart and she was doing so well in school. And, you know, during the time I was there, the orphanage said, well, maybe we should just pull her back into the orphanage because it's kind of, they were arguing it's kind of costly to have her in foster care. And um, she can't be adopted internationally or nationally because she has a parent, even though the parent is incarcerated. So she was sort of in this weird administrative limbo. Fortunately, during the time um, that I was there shortly after I left, uh, I learned that she was going to be able to stay with Auntie Lee um, and uh, be able to go to high school and and grow up essentially in her household her whole life, which was, again, really unusual. And I talk about in the book about how Auntie Lee really fought for Pepe to stay in foster care with her. And that really speaks to the fact that, you know, we think of foster families as quite temporary. But in this case, Auntie Lee is her family. You know, that's who she grew up with her whole life. And the foster family is more permanent um, than anything. And so this you know, again, kind of complicates the idea that we have that these families are expendable or replaceable. So that's Pepe's uh, case. Um, Dung Rong just got so ill, unfortunately, um, when she was living out in the countryside, as many children did. It was really rough in South China. Um, there's many homes don't have heat. And so during the winter, it is just incredibly cold and damp. And I saw a lot of children struggling in this village, despite the orphanage trying to provide a lot of support. And so she um, had a lot of complications with her lungs and upper respiratory infections due to her cerebral palsy and had to go back into the orphanage where she could receive more substantial medical care and live in the institution. Um, So that was really sad because it seemed like it was um, she was really bonding with her foster family and um, the families in that village, I think, were, you know, really growing in their acceptance and love for these children as well. So in that case, that was that was really sad. Um, and then May Lee was actually adopted um, to America. And uh, that happened shortly after I left. And um, she 
had actually said that she didn't want to be adopted, but then kind of changed her mind uh, during the time that I was there shortly after I was there and ended up being um, eventually adopted. And so it's been really interesting to keep in touch with her um, because now I talk to her off and on. <laughs> and um, yeah, she, she was adopted uh, eventually. So, you know, three very different um, trajectories for these children that I think, you know, what I'm trying to do in the book is really think about family and um, our concepts of family and the concept that we have of, like I said, foster care being temporary and the ways in which that these families actually make substantial, I think, disruptions to the ideas that we have about um, Chinese family from a cultural perspective. And then, you know, adoption um, and abandonment, right? That there is this critical kind of role that foster families play. Yes, thanks so much. Thanks to sorry, sorry, thanks for your discussion of the I, I really appreciate you said term like the differentiate differentiate or different trajectory of the three children. Um and so my last question will be I mean let's go from the field to the theory. So my last question is about like uh, when I read your book, I noticed that very important um term you used in your conceptual term use your book is is called the replaceability of being replaceable or not. So my question is that could you please talk about the replaceability and the irreplaceability of those foster mothers in China? Yeah, thank you for that question. So one of the things that I talk about with respect to my research is that, you know, you hear a lot about adoptees in this country in the United States, um, around the world. And so you hear a lot about adoptive families and then adoptive mothers. And then um, when people are thinking about that child's trajectory, you hear a lot about birth mothers. And often a child who's adopted will go looking for their birth mother, which is an incredibly complicated journey when that birth mother um, was in China, for instance. But you almost never hear about foster mothers. And so what I felt was important to do with this book is to really draw attention to that third party in any family making process that when people adopt now from foreign countries, often that child is fostered because that is really the best environment for a child to um, grow up healthy emotionally and to bond with a family. And so I wanted to draw attention to the labor, um, the emotional right um, labor that foster families offer. But I also wanted to query this, like you said, irreplaceability or replaceability, because, you know, why is it that we don't talk about foster mothers? You know, why do we um, only talk about birth and adoptive mothers? And I think, you know, one reason is because we think of foster families, as I mentioned before, as temporary. We think the whole point of that family, right, is to not persist. <laughs> it's to kind of play like a minor role and then to disappear. But I think that you can see from the different trajectories of the children in my book that well, we never really know, right? Because I think foster families play whatever role they're kind of asked to play. And then I think I wanted to also think about the way in which foster care may be sustaining international adoption and ask questions of really about morality and whether that, you know, is a good thing. And then I think the final thing with respect to families is to just really point out that, you know, 
I think we think about families kind of as islands sometimes, <laughs> but when you look at all of these families, like if you look at the birth families, the foster families, the adoptive families in my book, I mean, they're all so deeply connected. Um, and I think that we really um, kid ourselves kind of in thinking that um, families are islands. And I think there's this way in which these foster families who seemed like so in need of families, like desperate for families, actually play, like I said, this really pivotal, important role in making other families. And so I just kind of wanted to lift that up and to ask some questions about that and to point to that I think, you know, as the book is called, I think these are families we need. Um, and yet I think we we almost like hope we don't need them because we hope that kinship you know, there's kind of this illusion of, of kinship, especially in China, right, being just very kind of biologically family oriented, or there's this illusion in the West of like, oh, yeah, you choose your family. But everybody really is needy, right, when it comes to the economy of the family, not just the the foster mothers and the, you know, orphanage workers were so put off sometimes by that neediness. But I found it quite insightful, and obviously, theoretically important. And really refreshing in thinking about what actually constitutes a family. Yeah, <clears throat> Dr. Rafti, I really appreciate your answer. So I want to say, as, I want to say again, as a Chinese national, I want to say, I, before reading your book and listening to your talk, I did, I had the very limited knowledge of the story of those foster family. So, and I think it also works for, I mean, my American or English speaking audience, for example, we talk about like the adopt international adoption in China. The common image is like okay, some rich middle class American family come to China, adopt Chinese health children, and then back bring and then they brought children back to China. So, but as you as we can learn from your book, like in the story in this scenario, actually there are there are some I won't say hidden fingers. Those Chinese maybe poor, but not very rich um, foster mothers and foster family. They played so important roles in those, I mean, those children's life, in those children's childhood. So we need to think highly about their contribution and their experience in the start, in, in, in this scenario. So thank you so much. Um, oh, the, thank you for having me. <laughs> Yeah, I really appreciate you coming to join us and give a talk about your newest book. So at the end of this episode, last thing I want to do, just like I want to, again, recommend everybody with interest in disability studies, interest in Chinese society, you may think of, you need to read, it's, a, it's I want to say it's a mastery book. It's, a, it's, 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 sorry, it's Dr. Erin Rafty's new book, called Families We Need, Disability Abundance and Foster Care Resistance in Contemporary China. So thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs>